I must say, what a joy it is to be with you, uh, to be with Pastor Philip and his wife Krista, Bill Van, Bill, uh, Bill Van Tynan, am I getting it right? And Kelly last night, uh, certainly Pastor Tim Stafford has helped a lot in what I have to say. So it is a joy to be with you. I should tell you, I've been a long admirer of D.L. Moody. What I'm talking about this morning comes really from my heart and a transformation the Lord did as I was at a place called La Brie in Switzerland with Francis Schaeffer, and it is there that I came to understand the Trinity in a new way. I'd, I'd been a doubter. I wondered, well, where are the passages that put all this together? And that, that pushed me to uh, trust the Lord in new ways. And one of those places was in Tobago. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I would go to village to village and go door to door, and at that point I was kind of alone. And uh, I remember preaching on a street corner right beside the Caribbean Ocean, the, wa the waves washing up there. And what I would do is plagiarize D.L. Moody. I'd memorize the sermons and preach them. I do remember one. I was the only white guy there. No one was paying any attention, but I preached my heart out. And as I walked away, I felt like this is what I am made for. This is why I am created to glorify as our songs today are God. Well, D.L. Moody is several generations back, and since your last missions conference, you have had two other major figures we have as missionary visionaries pass away. One of those is the famous and, uh, brother Andrew uh, from Holland and all of that. You probably don't know much of his background. He founded Open Doors today in 60 countries around the world. But Brother Andrew was totally secular, went with the Dutch army after World War II into Indonesia, confesses he was involved in a village massacre and a good bit of killing. He was hit, and reading the Bible in his despondency and despair, he turned to Christ. Well, after that, uh, the doors opened in many places. That's why the missions called open doors to get into then the Iron Curtain, later into China, later into Muslim countries still. He passed away nine months ago. Brother Andrew, tremendous impact. Another is George Verwer. George Verwer was a renegade teenager in New Jersey. Uh, he said that somebody put him on there, a, a dear lady in the church, his, her Holy Spirit hit list. So she began to pray for young George, who went to a crusade of Jack Wurtson and Billy Graham in Madison Square Gardens, and there was transformed by trusting in Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, he came to Moody Bible Institute after that and began taking teams out, and he and another founded a group called Operation Mobilization, OM. You've probably heard about it. I mean, they're one of the largest missions in the world today, including their many, many international representatives, the Lagos, the Dulos, other major ships have been in over 150 countries and served over 50 million people in health needs and giving them the gospel and all of the rest. Well, like D.L. Moody and like Brother Andrew and like George Verwer, here we are. They've gone before us and now we stand before our God. I want to bring to you something that stood behind their efforts to honor and serve our God and should stand behind ours as well. I want to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, really the Trinity itself, and our purpose in life. There's a deeper call to missions that goes right into the heart of every one of us if we claim at all to be believers. Now, we want to be clear in understanding that sometimes we're not understanding this at all. 
It is, we sense the Spirit of God leading us to talk with a friend or to do a good work for somebody under a bridge. It could be a thousand things. And we're trying to follow our Lord Jesus, who did say to take up your cross and follow me. And we're now in relationship with the Father. We've experienced his grace. He has blessed us and we are his. He has uh, regenerated us, reconciled us to himself through Christ. And now we are adopted by the Father into his family. So in one sense, believers may not be able to articulate much about the doctrine of the Trinity, but that understanding of God stands behind everything else. That experiential reality in our life is incredibly important, as I trust nearly all of you have experienced. But as the early church understood, experience isn't enough. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. But we also need to be able to say, well, who is this God? And as we walk through the first century, second century, third century, fourth, fifth of the church, we have our church fathers helping us articulate, because there were no conceptual categories to talk about Trinity. It's still mystery in many ways. But they began to categorize, put into words, into, into expression that we can talk about, the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's where we are headed today. This is really, this is really the big picture of our God. If God is the absolute and our understanding of God then becomes primary for our lives. This is not simply your personal Jesus. This is God, as we have sung wonderfully today, as the center of everything, holy, holy, holy. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. God is the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty, from whom all is perfectly derived and on whom all is most absolutely and perfectly dependent, of whom, again, of whom and through whom is all being and perfection. Jonathan Edwards. A.W. Tozer put it a little more nicely, a little more uh, easy to grasp. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wow. Whatever comes into our minds when we think about God, that concept of God is the most important thing about us. It's interesting that in the liturgical calendar that hundreds of millions around the world follow for the more traditional denominations. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, 40 days after our Lord ascended into heaven when in Acts 2 the Holy Spirit came on the earliest church. But today, one week later, June 4th, today is Holy Trinity Sunday. So I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. This is right after the resurrection. In fact, there's so much I'd love to pack in here. There's simply not time to do so. But we go a little before the cross and we are in that upper room discourse of our Lord. I want you to turn to John 20, uh, verses 19 to 22. But even before that, our Lord is explaining what never before the Father and his relation to the Father and the Holy Spirit, who he would send in a new way. And they were beginning to understand, and right at the end of chapter 16, the disciples say, wow, now you're speaking clearly. Now I get it. 
And Jesus said, even in chapter 16, I have to read that a little bit. He said, do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each of you to your own home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. Wow, talk about <laughs> a response to their saying, we believe now. And yet, hours later, they, as you know, in the garden would, would abandon our Lord. But listen, the very end of chapter 16 is this. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. What, we're all gonna scatter and abandon you? You may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then John 17 is the famous high priestly prayer where our Lord, our Lord prays for his disciples. And in fact, and this brackets the cross and the resurrection, in John 17, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. So here you have this commission of our Lord sending out the disciples even before the cross and his descent into Hades to proclaim his victory over the dead and then his resurrection on Sunday, Easter morning. So here we are now in chapter 20. I think it should encourage you ladies that the one that John really centers on is Mary Magdalene who is the first one who comes to the tomb and it's empty and she's bewildered. The, the stone has been rolled away. Apparently the soldiers have gone and she runs and tells the disciples. And you'll recall the story then. John and Peter get there and it is an empty tomb. And well, Peter goes on in and there are the, there are the wrappings of Jesus laying as though he sort of disappeared and the head cloth, but they didn't know what to make of it. John says he began to believe at that point but they didn't see Jesus. They went back to tell the other disciples. Then Mary, Mary comes back to the garden. You know the story. And she looks into the tomb and there are two men sitting there and they say, woman, why are you weeping? And then she hears a voice behind her. She assumes it's the gardener. Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And Mary has some gumption, Mary Magdalene. She says, show me where he is and I will get him. I will, I will, I will get him. That's pretty amazing. But of course, then our Lord says, Mary. And she, ah, she recognized that voice and grabbed hold of him, probably around his legs. He told her to go tell the other disciples that he has risen. Jesus didn't show up for a few hours after that, at least according to the biblical record. Then he's with the two on the road to Emmaus late in the afternoon. And finally, we come to our text, the disciples thinking, well, if Jesus is gone and they're beginning to spread rumors that we took him, we're next. So they're in a locked room. Verse 19, chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's exactly what he'd said earlier. After he said this, he showed them his hands, his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. I suspect some of us are here today and we're not really sensing peace at all. There's things going wrong in our lives or there's tensions or maybe we're being rejected as a Christian. Maybe we're just having family tensions or 
with our friends or at school, whatever it might be. And in the midst of the travail of this world, our Lord simply says, peace of elsewhere, my peace I have given to you. After he said this, he said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So both before the cross and our Lord's death and resurrection, and now after, John gives us with two barrels this great, oh, Jesus gives it to us, this great command. The Father, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed, really the text is inserted in English on them. He didn't go around and blow in each face, though. It just says he breathed and then said, receive, receive the Holy Spirit. Wow, this is really the big picture, isn't it, for, for all of us. And so I want to set before you this morning this. As Missio Dei, simply means the mission of God, as Missio Dei is the expression of God himself sending the Son and the Spirit into the world, so Missio Dei, the mission of God, becomes the essential expression of faith in every one of our lives if we claim to know the Lord at all. If one is Christian, in a way, when we're adopted into the family and made followers of Christ, this gets locked into our very souls. We must follow, we must express the mission of God in this world to be fulfilled. So we're not talking about some esoteric theological mystery, rather the mission of God is our reason for being. Whether you're going over to another part of the world, like many of our blessed missionaries, or whether you're in your home in a difficult situation or caring for someone who's handicapped or you're the caregiver for, who knows? But this is our mission, whoever we are, as a 12-year-old, as an 80-year-old, God has called us to it. Missio Dei is an interesting phrase. It is unpacked for us by a well-known Latin theologian, uh, well-known in the U.S. as well, Justo Gonzalez. And he said the phrase Missio Dei really was used to simply speak of the mission of God, sending the Son and the Spirit into the world, Missio Dei. Everybody knew what that was if you were in church at all. It was really only when we began to get to the beginning of the missionary movement around 1900, according to Justo Gonzalez, that Missio Dei began increasingly to be applied to the missionary movement itself, our movement, what we're reading about today. So I'd like to unpack that a little bit more as we seek to understand these two meanings. If you're following along in the outline, I hope, I hope you are. First of all, the Father sends the Son, and then verses before that, the Son and the Father send forth the Holy Spirit in a, in a whole new way. This other counselor, this one like the Son, now is coming forth. Well, what does Missio Dei, what does that reveal about God? Well, there's a couple passages I suspect all of you know very well. What does that reveal about God? Well, let's unpack that. John 1, 1. What? In the beginning was the Word. You can cite it with me. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God, and through him all things were made that were ever made. Nothing was made apart from him. But what does that say? I ask my students at seminary, well, what's going on here if, if this logos, this word, who was later described as, Christ, as, son, as a son, if he is with God, I think we can understand that, he's with the Father, but when it says he was God, a lot of people trip over that one, don't they? Is the Father the Son or the Son the Father? The word theos is used in more than one way. Theos, the word God. He was with God and was God, meaning all the godness of the Father is also in the Son. He is fully God, as is the Father. And yet it distinguishes between the two beautifully again, and he was with God, again, again emphasizes. Well, that was one of the main rails, we'll see two rails, that began to carry the church forward with all the other scriptures as well, to a doctrine of the Trinity. The Son is God, the Father is God, but they're not two gods, there's only one God. We come to another of the major rails, and this one you know very well too. It's Missions Week. This is the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You know that. Go, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, that singular name, the Hebrew Hashem, it's not in the Greek text, of course, but the sacred name, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew already had given evidence of the, through Jesus, the, the full deity of the Holy Spirit as well. So here you have both John 1.1 and Matthew 28 and, and many other texts. There are actually about 130 texts in the New Testament alone, 130 that speak of Father, Son, and Spirit in some order and with different words. God, Christ, Counselor, Dove, lots of terms are there. 130 passages. We usually read over them and don't think twice, but there they are. And they begin to form then what we understand of God himself. We see that the Father loves the Son, a phrase that occurs 22 times in the New Testament. And we see that the Son loves the Father, but as the incarnate Son, now Christ, he doesn't go around saying, I love the Father, I love the Father. He shows his love, though he does say it twice, he shows his love by what? Obedience. In fact, at one point, John 10, he says, the reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life for the sheep. There's a whole lot of other reasons the Father loved the Son, obviously from before eternity, but yes. And the Spirit. The Spirit delights in glorifying the Son and glorifying the, the Father. So he brings the depths of the Father of God to us in the inspired scriptures and by leading us in our lives. So what we see even here at the beginning is that the three persons are not identical. They're not clones one of the other. They are the one God, the one essence of God, but they have distinct relations with one another. The Son begotten, as we say, the Spirit proceeding. There are many ways to talk about that. Quoting, really, Gerald McDermott, a sort of, as Jerry, my friend, is re-couching -re Jonathan Edwards' thinking, the most beautiful pattern of all, and therefore the pattern of all consent and harmony 
is God's love among the three persons. By this, Jonathan Edwards meant that each person's loving consent to the glory and will of the other two persons, and then to the Trinity's design for creation, uh, is the center of everything. We have sung that God is holy, 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 and that he is perfect righteousness. He is the moral absolute of the universe. Yet he also is the eternally self-giving God. He didn't stay, I'll say it crassly, in a man cave in heaven and enjoy video games for all eternity. Quite the contrary. He created this immense universe, created earth, created us, created Israel. Jesus came right down into the flesh. So we go another step. What does this then reveal about God's engagement with creation and humanity? Other texts that will help us along the way, John 1:14. We just read the very first verses of the same prologue of John. Now in verse 14, we're told that this word who was with God and is God became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We go three more verses to John 1, 18. And here we read, this is most extraordinary, this is kind of the climax of the first 18 verses, the, the prologue, the introduction of the Gospel of John. And John writes, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, probably the earliest manuscripts, it's debated, said the one and only God, who's at the Father's side, but we'll go with the NIV here, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is, as an, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. So here's this God now flesh like us. A little bit further, we see again John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything into this incarnate logos, everything into his hands. Sometimes as Jesus is speaking with the religious readers, uh, religious uh, uh, listeners that he had, uh, the shock they must have felt is extraordinary. I think of John 5 selecting a few verses out of that. For the Father loves the Son, John 5, 20 and 21, I'll read down through 26. The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Pharisees and scribes would have, well, at least Pharisees would have said, okay, even so the Son, that's him, gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Whoa. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to his Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's astonishing. Whoever does not honor the Son, hello, Muslims, does not honor the Father who sent him. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So what does Missio Dei reveal about God's relationship with, with creation? Well, first of all, that every member of the Godhead is involved with creation and even recreation. Spirit was there at the beginning, but given in a special way at Pentecost. Secondly, that God loves the world 
Even sinful humanity, that word world, cosmos, carries the implication of this, this dark empire that stands in some ways controlled by Satan and in rebellion against God, and yet God loves, that's his world, finally. And so our lives are the evidence of his mercy, which is the third point. It is that through the cross, holy God made a way for people to be forgiven. We are cleaned. We are reconciled to this God. Again, we are adopted. So as Michael Reeves put it, along with Daniel Hams, through the cross, excuse me, the cross stands at the defining moment in God's relationship to all creation the pinnacle and epitome of all he desires to show us of himself. It is the assertion and the self-declaration, but one that's less like a political manifesto and more like a proposal of marriage. God says to his people at the cross of Jesus, this is who I am. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. We might diagram this with three lines. Thank my friend uh, John Dyer at Dallas Seminary for putting this together. Because what God has revealed in his creation through the Gospels, through the New Testament, through the Old Testament, takes us to something even greater. God is authentically, truly, what he has revealed in the scriptures. And yet, God is so much more than that as well. But what he has communicated, he has communicated in the deepest sense of his heart, who our God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, glory, is glorious. So let me give you a definition of the Trinity. You, I think you have it before you, but some listening online might not. It is this. The one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relations. Let me unpack that a little bit more. The one true God eternally exists, before time and space began, eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence, because there's one God, one nature of God, yet one in glory because they share the glory they have, and distinct in relations because each, not in a hierarchy, but in a horizontal, horizontal sense, love one another and relate to one another in different ways. So again, the Spirit delights in glorifying the Son and the Father. He's not particularly interested in glory for himself. Finally, it's a shared glory, of, co of course, but there's a perfect harmony in our God. So we might even say, well, God has one mind and one will, and yet, we also have to say, but paradoxically, I don't understand it, but God must also have three minds and three wills because they love and glorify and for all eternity, past and future, relate to one another. So, Missio Dei, the Father sends the Son, and the Son and the Father send the Spirit into the world, and that is glorious. Well, a second major part of all of this, God's mission is our mission as well. He has come and we are now called. What is happening in the United States and really global culture in many ways? 
I have a graph here that may be helpful as we look on. Changing values in America. If you can see the fine print. First of all is patriotism and how in the last 25 years, since 1998 to now 2023, this is Wall Street Journal and other reputable sources, patriotism has fallen from 70% to 38% in the poll taken. What about having children there to the, the lower left? Um, that was pretty popular. 59% said, yeah, that's a major value for me. Now about 30% say, well, yeah, that's still my value. Community service there in the bottom, in the middle. Well, it was popular for a little bit, but it has dropped to, you might say, all-time lows as well, from 62% not too long ago to now 28%. Maybe closer to home for us, religion. In 1998, 62% of those polled in the United States said religion still is a major value for me. That has fallen to 39%. What has gone up is the last one in the far right corner, money. I want, I want to live like Taylor Swift. I want to have a nice life and lots of things coming down. Money, money. You live in the middle of it right here in Chicago. So we've seen in the last two nights. Uh, yet ironically, there's another graph that sort of contradicts this one in one way. And that's this one you're seeing by Barna. They say there's been a, in, in the surveys they've taken, the majority of adults want to grow in spirituality. You say, what? They like money better than religion, but they want to grow in spirituality. And that goes all the way from baby boomers like myself to, to Gen Z and those who've born 1995 and beyond. Everybody, it seems well over 75%, want to grow in spirituality. But what kind of spirituality? We might think of Marvel Comics and that kind of spirituality. Everybody wants superpower. I want to be Captain America or maybe you want to be Flash or whatever else it is. We want power, but it draws attention to ourselves, doesn't it? And so the other religions of the world often are out there to draw attention to themselves, whether Buddhism transcending self and touching uh, the transcendent somehow, or Advaita Hinduism, or Kabbalistic Judaism, or Sufi Islam again and again. So we want to be able to defeat our foes and stand strong. In some ways, though, that is also true for us as Christians, isn't it? Because there seems to be an epidemic of selfish Christians. We like our lives. Well, we hear about health, wealth, theology, and things like that. And yes, God can heal me, and God can make me well off, and all the rest. And infused into our Christianity, not only in the United States, I see it wherever I go in the world, is this desire that God's going to make me great. It begins to close in around ourselves. But the Bible says we're born again to give ourselves away, doesn't it? To God and to others. We know this in our hearts when we live for ourselves, and we all do sometimes, don't we? But we feel that deadness coming in. Somehow I'm not aligned where I should be with my Lord. Selfish Christians, we all struggle with that. And what about selfish churches? Uh, as I was a missionary coming back from Brazil at one point, 
I came to, I spoke in a large church in Washington State. And the pastor beforehand confided to me, you know, we have a large church, we're the biggest in the whole area, but, but I've got second and third and fourth generation Christians just walking away. We're doing everything we know, know how to do. We've got seminars on how to take good care of yourself and, and health and, you know, how to, how to be wise as a single, how to make good choices if you're dating or anything else, how to have happy marriages, how to have a great sex life, how to raise your children, how to succeed in business, how to balance your budget, how to pay off your debts. He said, we've tried to do everything. We have women's groups, men's groups, youth groups, older groups. It just goes on and, on. and yet, they're walking away. Why is that? It's because we're caving Christianity in around our own well-being. And there's nothing wrong with the things we've just talked about. But God calls us beyond that. Rather than self-giving sacrifice, too often we have bred self-centered Christians. And so how is understanding Trinity central to our own personhood, central to the life of the church? Our mission as believers is grounded in God's own mission. He comes to us in incarnation and in the outpouring of the Spirit. When we do Christian care, when we give of ourselves to others, we are continuing God's missio de, God's mission into the world as rather than selfish, selfless believers, we begin to move ahead. Several scriptures that strike home here. John 12, 25 and 26, anyone who loves their life will lose it. You know these texts. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And Jesus says, that's the one the Father will honor. And so we think of that diagram again of those three lines. What Jesus is and what he's led us to, and as we follow him, we're brought up into the life-giving fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One writer put it this way, evangelism is something intrinsic to the identity of the church, not an optional extra, but something part and parcel of its very being. The church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. Without self-giving to our Lord, we die within. But with self-giving, we imitate our Savior. So all of this brings us to a final point. The Missio Dei is deeply personal. It is an invitation to every one of us. And I need not elaborate this. We might ask, well, I think I'm understanding what you're saying, but where do I begin? How do I get started in this? Who do I go to? And that's between you and the Lord. Uh, it may be a roommate. It may be somebody next door. It could be a colleague at work or at school. Who knows? God will show you and say, I want you. Yeah, it might be embarrassing, but I want you to help. I want you to reach out. I want you to build a bridge or even share the gospel. And we're called to do that. And when we do, we're filled up with God's life, even when sometimes they're rejecting us. We might ask also, well, are you sending me beyond my Jerusalem and my Judea to another part of the world? That's the mission's challenge you'll be hearing all this week.
The only place I know in Scripture where we are told to be imitators of God, although be holy as God is holy, but is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. These are extraordinary words, and I'm reading out of the ESV. Therefore, he's command, Paul's commanding the Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children. What? How do I do that? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we think of those three lines again. And as our Lord has come down and revealed who he is, so as we listen and follow, we are raised up. In the end, understanding who God is, here's really the big picture. Understanding who God is will define why you and I exist and who we are as persons created in God's image and how we may be most fulfilled individually and in relationship to others, especially to our, our Creator. And so, Brother Andrew went before us. George Verwer went before us. How can we, how can we follow? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. We say hallelujah. We sang hallelujah for your great redemption to us. And you simply say, follow my son. Listen to the spirit and I will give you life. And so in this week and in this hour and in this moment, Lord, take what we are. Take our hearts. Take our wills. Lord, we want to give them to you. Show me. Show me how to be more Christ-like in this day and in this week and in my life. We pray it in Jesus' name.